Before noting the use to which Elijah put this offering, let us observe that gifts sometimes come from the most unexpected quarters. Had this man come from Bethel or Shunem, there would be no occasion for surprise. But that one from Baal Shalisha should bring God's servant an offering of his first fruits was certainly not to be looked for. Ah, does not each of God's servants know something of this experience? If on the one hand some on whose cooperation he had reason to count failed and disappointed him, others who as strangers have befriended him. More than once or twice has the writer and his wife had this pleasant surprise. We cherish their memory while seeking to forget the contrasted ones. Joseph might be envied and mistreated by his brethren, but he found favor in the eyes of Potiphar. Moses may be despised by the Hebrews, but he received kindly treatment in the house of Jethro. Rather than Elijah should starve by the brook Kerith, the Lord commands the ravens to feed him. Our supplies are sure, though at times they may come from strange quarters. And he said, Give unto the people that they may eat. 2 Kings 4.42 In the preceding miracle, this same trait is manifest. Nothing is there said of Elisha partaking of the pottage, nor even of the young prophets in his charge, but rather the people. Such liberality will not go unrewarded by God, for he has promised, Give, and it shall be given unto you. Luke 6.38 Such was the case here, for the very next thing recorded after this, Pour out for the people that they may eat, verse 41, is the receiving of these twenty loaves. And what use does he now make of them? His first thought was not for himself, but for others. We must not conclude from the silence of this verse that the prophet failed either to perceive the hand of God in this gift or that he neglected to return thanks unto him. Had the scriptures given a full and detailed account of such matters, they had run into many volumes instead of being a single one. According to the law of analogy, we are justified in concluding that he did both. Moreover, what follows shows plainly that his mind was stayed upon the Lord. The situation which confronted Elisha is one that in principle has often faced God's people. What the Lord gives to me is not to be used selfishly, but shared with others. Yet sometimes we are in the position where what is on hand does not appear sufficient for that purpose. My supply may be scanty and the claims of a growing family have to be met. If I contribute to the Lord's cause and minister to his servants and people, may not my little ones go short? 
Here is where the exercise of faith comes in. Lay hold of such promises as Luke 6.38 and 2 Corinthians 9.8. Act on them and you shall prove the liberal soul shall be made fat. Proverbs 11.25 Especially should the ministers of Christ set an example in this respect. If they be close-handed, it will greatly hinder their usefulness. Elisha did not scruple to make practical use of what was designed as an offering to the Lord, as David did not hesitate to take the showbread and give to his hungry men. Fourth, its opposition. And his servitor said, What, should I set this before an hundred men? Verse 43, Ah, the servant of God must not expect others to be equally zealous in exercising a gracious spirit or cooperate with him in the works of faith. No, not even those who are his assistants. None can walk by the faith of another. When Luther announced his intention of going to Worms, even his dearest brethren sought to dissuade him. But was not such an objection a natural one? Yes, but certainly not spiritual. It shows how shallow and fleeting must have been the impression made on him by the previous miracles. It was quite in keeping with what we read of this servitor, Gehazi, elsewhere. His language expressed incredulity and unbelief. Was he thinking of himself? Did he resent his master's generosity and reason? We shall need this food for ourselves. And this, after all the miracles he had seen God work through Elisha. Ah, it takes something more than the witnessing of miracles to regenerate a dead soul. As the Jews made evident when the Son of God wrought in their midst, Fifth, its means, faith in God and His Word. He said again, Give the people that they may eat, for thus saith the Lord, they shall eat and shall leave thereof. Verse 43 Where there is real faith in God, it is not stumbled by the unbelief of others, but when it stands in the wisdom of men, it is soon paralyzed by the opposition it encounters. When blind Bartimaeus began to cry out, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me, and many charged him that he should hold his peace, he cried the more a great deal. Mark 10, 46-48 On the other hand, one with the stony ground hero's faith dureth for a while, for when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. Matthew 13:21. When Elisha had first said, Give unto the people that they may eat, it was the language of faith. Verse 41 of Second Kings 4 seems to show the people had been seeking unto the prophet in the extremity of their need. His own barrel of meal had probably run low, and 
It is likely he had been praying for its replenishment. And here was God's answer, yet in such a form or measure as to further test his faith. Elisha saw the hand of God in this gift and counted upon his making it sufficient to meet the needs of the crowd. Elisha regarded those twenty loaves as an earnest of greater bounties. Do we regard such providences as a token for good, or are we so wrapped up in the token itself that we look no further? It was a bold and courageous faith in Elisha. He was not afraid the Lord would put him to confusion and cause him to become a laughing stock to the people. At first his faith was a general yet sufficient one in the character of God. Then it met with a rebuff from Gehazi, but he refused to be shaken. And now it seems to us that the Lord rewarded his servant's faith by giving him a definite word from himself. The way to get more faith is to use what has already been given us. Luke 8, 18 For God ever honors those who honor Him. Trust Him fully, and He will then bestow assurance. The minister of Christ must not be deterred by the carnality and unbelief of those who ought to be the ones to strengthen His hands and cooperate with Him. Alas, how many have suffered distrustful deacons to quench their zeal by the difficulties and objections which they raise. How often the children of Israel opposed Moses and murmured against him, but by faith he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Hebrews 11.27 6. It's Antitype There is no doubt whatever in our minds that this incident supplies the Old Testament foreshadowment of our Lord's miracle in feeding the multitude. And it is both interesting and instructive to compare and contrast the type with its antitype. Note then the following parallels. First, in each case, there was a crowd of hungry people. Second, Elisha took pity on them, and Christ had compassion on the needy multitude. Matthew 14.14 Third, a few loaves formed the principal article of diet, and in each case they were barley ones. John 6.9 Fourth, in each case the order went forth, Give, not sell, the people that they may eat. Compare Mark 6.37 Fifth, in each case, an unbelieving attendant raised objection. John 6.7 Sixth, Elisha fed the crowd through his servant, verse 44, and Christ through his apostles, Matthew 14.19 Seventh, in each case, a surplus remained after the people had eaten, Verse 44, and compare Matthew 14, verse 20. And now observe wherein Christ has the preeminence. First, he fed a much larger company, over 5,000, Matthew 14, 21, instead of 100. Second, he employed 
fewer loaves, five, Matthew 14:17 instead of 20. Third, he supplied a richer feast, fish as well as bread. Fourth, he wrought by his own power. Seventh, its meaning. It will suffice if we just summarize what we have previously dwelt upon. One, the servant of God who is faithful in giving out to others will not himself be kept on short rations. Two, the more such an one obtains from God, the more should he impart to the people. Freely ye have received, freely give. Three, God ever makes his grace abound unto those who are generous. Four, a true servant of God has implicit confidence in the divine character. Five, though he encounters opposition, he refuses to be stumbled thereby. Six, though other ministers ridicule him, he acts according to God's word. Seven, God does not fail him, but honors his trust. Chapter 14 the Tenth Miracle The healing of Naaman is the best known one of all the wonders wrought through Elisha, for it has been made the subject of numerous sermons in the past, supplying as it does a very striking, typical picture of salvation, not in all its varied aspects, for salvation is many-sided but as portraying the condition of him who is made its subject, his dire need because of the terrible malady of which he was the victim, the sovereign grace which met with him, the requirements he had to comply with, his self-will therein, and how his reluctance was overcome. Yet there is not a little in this incident which is offensive to our supercilious age, inclining present-day preachers to leave it alone so that much that has been said upon it in the past will be more or less new unto the present generation. As it has pleased the Holy Spirit to enter into much more detail upon the attendant circumstances of this miracle, this will require us to give it a fuller consideration. It is their typical import which renders the Old Testament scriptures of such interest to us upon whom the ends of the ages are come. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. Romans 15.4 That which is said before us more abstractly in the epistles is rendered simpler of understanding by means of the concrete and personal illustrations supplied under the previous dispensations, when figures and symbols were employed more freely. Noah and his family in the ark, preserved from the flood which swept away the world of the ungodly, the Hebrews finding security under the blood of the paschal lamb, when the angel of death slew all the firstborn of the Egyptians. Healing being conveyed by faith, look at the brazen serpent on the pole. 
the cities of refuge affording asylum to the manslayer who fled thither for refuge from the avenger of blood are so many examples of simple yet graphic prefigurations of different aspects of the redemption which is found in Christ Jesus. Another is before us here in Second Kings 5. Before taking up the spiritual meaning of what is recorded of Naaman, there is one thing mentioned about him which deserves separate notice, and we will look at it now so that our main line of thought may not be broken into later on. In the opening verse of our chapter, it is stated that Naaman was a great man with his master and honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance, victory, unto Syria. This teaches us that there can be no success in any sphere of life unless God gives it, for the way of man is not in himself, it is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Jeremiah 10.23 Still less to ensure their outcome. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it, as was made evident when God brought to naught the lofty ambitions of those erecting the tower of Babel. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh in vain. Psalm 127.1 As Belshazzar discovered when the Medes surprised and overcame his sentinels and captured Babylon. Not only can there be no success in any human undertaking unless the Lord is pleased to prosper the same, but he exercises his own sovereignty in the instruments or agents employed in the carrying out of his purposes, whether it be in the communicating of blessings or the execution of judgments. It is therefore to be duly observed that it was not because Naaman was a good man that the Lord caused his military efforts to thrive. So far from it, he was an idolater, a worshipper of Bremen. Moreover, not only was he a stranger to God spiritually, but he was a leper, and therefore ceremonially unclean, shut out by the Mosaic law. From which we may learn that when the Most High is pleased to do so, He makes use of the wicked as well as the righteous, a truth which needs pressing on the attention of the world today. Temporal success is far from being an evidence that the blessing of God rests upon either the person or the nation enjoying the same. All men are in God's hands to employ as and where he pleases, as truly so in the political and military realms as in the churches. First, its subject. Six things, the number of man, are here recorded about Naaman. One, he was captain of the host of the king of Syria. In modern language, this would be commander-in-chief of the king's army. Whether or not he had risen from the ranks, we cannot be sure. 
the, the reference to his valor suggests he had been promoted from a lower office. Whether that be so or no, he now occupied a position of prominence, being at the summit of his profession. Two, he was a great man with his master. It has been by no means always the case that the head of the military forces was greatly esteemed by his master. History records many instances where the reigning monarch has been jealous of the popularity enjoyed by the general, fearful in some cases that he would use his powerful influence against the interests of the throne. But it was quite otherwise in this case, for as the sequel goes on to show, the king of Syria was warmly devoted to the person of his military chieftain. 3. And honorable. So far from the king's slighting Naaman and keeping him in the background, he stood high in the royal favor. Naaman had furthered the interests of his kingdom, securing notable victories for his forces, and his master was not slow to show his appreciation and reward his valorous general. The brilliant exploits of many a brave officer has passed unnoticed by the powers that be, but not so here. For his military success is here directly ascribed unto God. For our passage goes on to say, By him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. The blessing of heaven had attended him and crowned his efforts and therein he was favored above many. Not that this intimated he personally enjoyed the approbation of God, but that divine providence made use of him in accomplishing his will. 5. He was naturally endowed with qualities which are highly esteemed among men, being possessed of great bravery and fortitude. For we are told, he was also a mighty man in valor, daring and fearless, and thus well equipped for his calling. It might well be asked, what could any man desire more? Did he not possess everything which is most highly prized by the children of this world? Was he not what they would designate the darling of fortune? having all that the human heart could wish, he had, as the votaries of Mammon express it, made good in life. He occupied a most enviable position. He was possessed of those traits which were admired by his fellows. He had served his country well and stood high in the king's regard and favor. Even so, there was a dark cloud on his horizon. There was something which not only thoroughly spoiled the present for him, but took away all hope for the future. For six, he was a leper. Here was the tragic exception. Here was that which cast its awful shadow over everything else. 
He was the victim of a loathsome and incurable disease. He was a pitiful and repulsive object with no prospect whatever of any improvement in his condition. Yes, my hero, the highly privileged and honored Naaman was a leper, and as such he portrayed what you are, what I am by nature. God's word does not flatter man, it lays him in the dust, which is one reason why it is so unpalatable unto the great majority of people. It is the word of truth, and therefore, instead of painting flattering pictures of human nature, it represents things as they actually are. Instead of lauding man, it abases him. Instead of speaking of the dignity and nobility of human nature, it declares it to be leprous, sinful, corrupt, depraved, defiled. Instead of eulogizing human progress, it insists that every man at his best estate is altogether vanity. Psalm 39.5 And when the Holy Scriptures define man's attitude toward and relationship with God, they insist that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. Romans 3, 10 and 11. They declare that we are his enemies by our wicked works. Colossians 1, 21. And that consequently we are under the condemnation and curse of God's law. And that his holy wrath abideth upon us. John three thirty six. The word of truth declares that by nature all of us are spiritual lepers, foul and filthy, unfit for the divine presence, being alienated from the life of God. Ephesians 4.18 Ah, my hearer, you may occupy a good position in this world, even an eminent station in the affairs of this life, you may have made good in your avocation and wrought praiseworthy achievements judged by human standards. You may be honorable in the sight of your fellows, but how do you appear in the eyes of God? A leper, one whom his law pronounces unclean, one who is utterly unfit for his holy presence. That is the first outstanding thing, the dominant lesson taught by our present passage. As it was with Naaman, so it is with you, a vast difference between his circumstances and his condition. There was the horrible and tragic exception, a great man, but a leper. There was a worm gnawing at his vitals, a deathbed at his feasts, a ghastly thing which cast its baneful shadow over all his fair prospects. We would not be faithful to our calling were we to glide over that in God's word which is distasteful to proud flesh and blood, nor would we be faithful to our hearers if we glossed over their frightful and fatal natural condition. It is in their soul's interests 
they should face this humiliating and unpleasant fact that in God's sight they are spiritual lepers. But we must individualize it. Hast thou, my hearer, realized this fact in thine own case? Hast thou seen thyself in God's light? Art thou aware that thy soul is suffering from a disease that neither you nor any human being can cure? It is so, whether you realize it or not. The scriptures declare that from the sole of thy foot to the crown of thy head there is no soundness in thee, yea, that in the sight of the Holy One Thou art a mass of wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. Isaiah 1, 6 Only as you penitently accept that divine verdict is there any hope for you. All disease is both the fruit and the evidence of sin, as was plainly intimated unto Israel. Under the Levitical law, God might well have required separate purifications for every form of disease, but he did not, and thereby he displayed his tenderness and mercy for such a multiplicity of ceremonial observances had been required as to constitute an intolerable burden. He therefore singled out one disease to be a standing object lesson and that such an one as could not fail to be a fit representation and most affecting symbol of sin. This disease was white leprosy, described with much minuteness of detail in Leviticus 13 and 14. Leprosy then was not only a real but a typical disease underbreaking in a most solemn and striking manner that fearful malady, sin, with which we are infected from the center to the circumference of our beings. While it be true that the type is only intelligible in the light of its antitype, the shadow in the presence of its substance, yet the former is often an aid to the understanding of the latter that the disease of leprosy was designed to convey a representation of the malady of sin appears from these considerations. First, the ceremonial purification whereby this stain of leprosy was cleansed pointed to the Lord Jesus as making atonement for the cleansing of his people. Second, it was not a physician but the high priest who was the person specifically appointed to deal with the leper. Third, there was no prescribed remedy for it. It could only be cured by a direct miracle. Fourth, the leper was cut off from the dwelling place of God and the tabernacle of his congregation, being put outside the camp. Thus it will be seen from these circumstances that leprosy was removed from the catalogue of ordinary diseases and had stamped upon it a peculiar and typical character. It was a visible sign of how God regarded the sinner as one unsuited to the presence of himself and his people. 
how unspeakably blessed then, to discover that though not the first he performed, yet the first individual miracle of Christ's recorded in the New Testament is his healing of the leper. Matthew 8, 2-4 For the particular benefit of young preachers and for the general instruction of all, we will close this chapter with an outline. 1. Leprosy has an insignificant beginning. To the non-observant eye it is almost imperceptible. It starts as a rising, a scab or bright spot. Leviticus 13.2 It is so trivial that usually no attention is paid to it. Little or no warning is given of the fearful havoc it will work. Was it not thus with the entrance of sin into this world? To the natural man, the eating of the forbidden fruit by our first parents appears a very small matter, altogether incommensurate with the awful effects it has produced. The unregenerate discern not that sin is deserving of and exposes them unto eternal destruction they regard it as a trifle, unduly magnified by preachers. 2. Leprosy is inherited. It is a communicable disease. It poisons the blood and so is readily transmitted from parent to child. It is so with sin. By one man sin entered into the world and death by sin and so death passed upon all men, for that all sinned. Romans 5.12 None has escaped this dreadful entail. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 51.5 is equally true of every member of Adam's race. None is born spiritually pure, Depravity is communicated in every instance from sire to son, from mother to maid. Human nature was corrupted at its fountainhead, and therefore all the streams issuing therefrom are polluted. 3. Leprosy works insidiously and almost imperceptibly, for it is a disease which is attended by little pain, only in its later stages, when its horrible effects discover themselves, is it unmistakably manifest. And thus it is with that most awful of all maladies. Sin is subtle and sly, so that, for the most part, its subjects are quite unconscious of its workings. Hence we read of the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 3.13 it is not until the Spirit convicts that one is made aware of the awfulness and extent of sin and begins to feel the plague of his own heart. 1 Kings 8.38 Yea, it is not until a person is born again that he learns his very nature is depraved. Only as a sinner grows old in sin does he discover what a fearful hold his lusts have upon him. 4. Leprosy spreads with deadly rapidity. 
though it begins with certain spots in the skin which are small at first, they gradually increase in size. Slowly but surely, the whole body is affected. The corruption extends inwardly while it spreads outwardly, vitiating even the bones and marrow. Like a locust on the twig of a tree, it continues eating its way through the flesh till nothing but the skeleton be left. This is what sin has done in man. It has corrupted every part of his being so that he is totally depraved. No faculty, no member of his complex constitution has escaped defilement. Heart, mind, will, conscience, spirit and soul and body are equally poisoned. I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Romans 7.18 5. Leprosy is highly infectious. Inherited inwardly, contagious outwardly. The leper communicates his horrible disease to others wherever he goes. That is why he was quarantined under the Mosaic law. And when he saw anyone approaching, he was required to give warning by crying, Unclean! Unclean! The analogy continues to hold good. Sin is a malady which is not only inherited by nature, but it is developed by association with the wicked. Evil communications corrupt good manners. 1 Corinthians 15.33 that is why the righteous are bidden, enter not into the path of the wicked and go not in the way of evil men. Avoid it as a plague. Pass not by it. Turn from it and pass away. Proverbs 4, 4 and 5. Such repetition bespeaks our danger and intimates how slow we are to be warned against it. Shun profane and vain babblings. Their word will eat as doth a canker. Second Timothy 2, 16 and 17. 6. Leprosy is peculiarly loathsome. There is nothing more repellent to the eye than to look upon one on whom this awful disease has obtained firm hold. Except with the most callous, Despite one's pity, he or she is obliged to turn away from such a nauseating sight with a shudder. Under Judaism there was no physician who ministered to the leper, and hence it is said of his putrefying sores that they have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Isaiah 1, 6 the leper may well appropriate to himself the language of Job. All my inward or intimate friends abhorred me, and they whom I love are turned against me. Job 19.19 19. All of which is a figure of how infinitely more repellent is the sinner in the sight of him who is of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Habakkuk 1.13 7. 
Leprosy is a state of living death. First the joints become relaxed, then dislocated, then, then an eye falls out, or the fingers and toes are shed, and even limbs fall off until the whole body becomes a horrible mess of dissolution and decay. It is a state of daily and progressive death. As one has said, the leper is a walking sepulchre, and this is precisely what sin is, a state of spiritual death, a living on the natural side of existence, but dead to all things spiritual. Thus we find an apostle declaring, She that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. 1 Timothy 5, 6 The natural man is dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, 1 Alive, sinward and worldward, but dead Godward. 8. Leprosy was dealt with by banishment. No leper was allowed to remain in the congregation of Israel. The terms of the Mosaic law were most explicit. He shall dwell alone, without the camp shall his habitation be. Leviticus 13.46 In the center of the camp was Jehovah's abode, and around his tabernacle were grouped his covenant people. From them the leper was excluded. How rigidly that was enforced may be seen from the fact that even Miriam, the sister of Moses, Numbers 12, 10-15, and Uzziah, the king, Second Kings 15, 5, were not treated as exceptions. The leper was deprived of all political and ecclesiastical privileges, dealt with as one dead, excluded from fellowship. It was a visible sign of how God regarded the sinner, for sin shuts out from his presence. Isaiah 59, 2 and 2 Thessalonians 1, 9. 9. Leprosy makes its victim an object of shame. It could not be otherwise. Robbing its subject of the bloom of health, replacing it with that which is hideous, excluding him from God and his people placing him outside the pale of decency. Consequently, the leper was required to carry about with him every mark of humiliation and distress. The law specified that his clothes shall be rent and his head bare, and he shall put a covering upon his upper lip, and shall cry, Unclean, unclean! Leviticus 13.45 What a spectacle! What a picture of abject misery! What a solemn portrayal of the natural man! Sin has marred the features of God's image in whose likeness he was originally made and stamped upon him the marks of the devil. 10. Leprosy is incurable so far as man is concerned. One really stricken with this disease was beyond all human aid. The outcome was inevitably fatal. Medical science was helpless before its advance. In like manner, sin is beyond human cure.
It can neither be eradicated nor ameliorated. No power of will or effort of mind can cope with it. Neither legislation nor reformation is of any avail. Education and culture are equally impotent. Sooner can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots than those do good who are accustomed to do evil. Jeremiah 13.23 But what is beyond the power of man is possible with God. Where the science of the ages stands helpless, the Savior manifests His sufficiency. He is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by Him. Hebrews 7.25 To the leper he said, I will be thou clean, and immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Matthew 8.3 Blessed, thrice blessed is that. In view of the ten points mentioned, how profoundly thankful every Christian should be that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth us from all sins. 1 John 1, 7 Chapter 15 Tenth Miracle In the preceding chapter, our attention was confined to the subject of this miracle, namely, Naaman the Syrian, who was stricken with the horrible disease of leprosy, a striking type of the natural man, corrupted by sin, unfit, for the presence of a holy God. The most fearful thing of all was that leprosy is incurable by the hand of man. Naaman was quite incapable of ridding himself of this terrible burden. No matter what plan he followed, what attempts he made, no help or relief was to be obtained from self-efforts. Have you realized the truth of this in its typical import, my hearer? that there is no deliverance from sin. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, 
from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.